So this week we're taking a hiatus from our Old Testament series because we finished the book of Mark this morning. I might be tipping my hand as to where I land on the topic of the ending of Mark when I say we have finished the book of Mark this morning. But tonight I think it's important for us to take a look at this question of what happens at the end of Mark. You may notice in your copies of God's Word, there's a big bracket, in the ESV especially. Uh, It says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. Maybe it's footnoted, uh, the TNIV reduces the font size, puts it in italics, and kind of separates it off. Uh, There are other versions, namely the King James, that just, it's just in line. It's just there. It's part of the text. And what that does is it gets us asking questions about why are there some things in our Bible that aren't in our Bible in the same way that other things are in our Bible? And some people look at this and they, they use it as an excuse to say, see, the Bible's not reliable. But my hope is to prove the exact opposite tonight as we look at this, to prove that the Bible is indeed incredibly reliable. And the fact that we have two instances in the New Testament where there are a chunk of 12 verses that seem not to be original, yet at one time were printed in the English version. Um, There's only two instances. And the fact that we can identify them using all these textual uh, criticisms, the fact that we have all these thousands of copies we can look at to go and identify these variables shows us how reliable the rest of the New Testament is. And it shows us that even as we look at these verses, uh, we, can, we can look at them with confidence that we have identified, best we can, what God has written to us in his word originally. Uh, there's so many different directions we could go through it, and so many things have already popped in my head for directions I want to take this. Um, and I am going to depend on you all to interrupt and ask questions. I'll, I'll give breaks here and there to ask questions. Uh, because I want to make sure that I'm addressing uh, some of the, the heart of the issue that uh, going through college and seminary, we talk about this stuff so much, I forget sometimes some of the assumed questions. So I need your help. Please ask those. Uh, here's a little bit of context on these last 12 verses in the book of Mark. Um, one commentator put it this way. I don't own a commentary written in the last 100 years that argues in favor of the longer ending of Mark's gospel, not one. So over the last 100 years, there is not a single commentator as far as as we know. And this is across the theological spectrum. These are liberal Christians, conservative Christians, reformed Christians, non-reformed Christians, All walks of biblical studies, no one agrees that verses 9 through 20 are original to Mark's writing. Anybody want to explain, those who have a a handle here on kind of how textual criticism has gone, why has that changed recently? What's been the shift in the last 100, 200 years in biblical studies? Is 
That's just Old Testament, but that's getting at the same thing. That's it. That's it. We have found more and more texts of the New Testament, older ones, closer to the originals. Uh, and we know that from copy manuscript, from, from copy families, and, and I'll try to explain that here in a moment. Uh, and we know it from uh, dating techniques, and we know it from location, and we know it from type of writing, the handwriting that was used, the capital Greek letters versus the lowercase Greek letters, and we know from the type of paper that was used. So we know we're finding older, closer documents to the original. Now, we believe all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That scripture, we believe, applies not to every translation since then, but to the original Greek and the original Hebrew. Here's the problem. Nobody has the original Greek and the original Hebrew. They probably um, decomposed or were disintegrated or maybe even destroyed within a couple decades because it used to be that out of respect for a a sacred text, they would destroy it when it started getting hard to read. And they would create the clean copy and destroy the old one out of respect for it. So that could have happened. We don't know. It could have just gone into disuse. Um, could have, um, we were talking earlier before uh, tonight started that, um, I may be getting the details wrong on this, but I remember reading a couple years ago, there was even a, a helmet, a war helmet discovered, Roman war helmet, that seems to have been padded with a bunch of ancient papers. One of them was a, a snippet from the Gospel of Mark, potentially the oldest copy of the book of, of Scripture, that uh, oldest copy of a fragment of Scripture discovered, late first century. So if that's true, if that's confirmed, um, that's, I mean, that further emphasizes uh, how old these documents are, how far back we can trace them, uh, and if we can trace it back to the first century, and that's the time of eyewitnesses. I mean, that just provides all kinds of um, support for, historically, support for uh, the scriptures as we find them. Uh, There is um, an English translation that has been popular since 1611, the King James, and it has developed its own following. Oh man, I could say I could make so many comments in that in that same strain. Um, I will the the authorized right. That's that's its uh, its nickname. Um, our our brothers and sisters who hold to that, um, unfortunately, I think are misled. But they are brothers and sisters, and they their scriptures contain the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is in that same Christ they believe. Um, unfortunately, it's not just the old English of King James that makes it inaccurate today because we understand words totally differently today. Um, but it also, it comes from the Textus Receptus tradition, which was a, a certain manuscript family. I need to explain manuscript families here in just a minute. And uh, so it came from certain Greek and Hebrew originals, and so it boasts being translated from original Greek and Hebrews, and it was translated from Greek and Hebrew, but uh, that Textus Receptus is from one strain of copy families. Uh, And it seems that we have found older, more original copy families since then. And that's why you'll find um, extra verses in the King James that were added by scribes to try to clarify theological questions. That was a pretty common thing, actually. The scribes would clarify things in the margins. And the next time it was copied, it was incorporated into the text for some reason. That happens from time to time. Um, So that's kind of the context for why this is a problem, 
why it's bracketed off in your Bibles, and the popular opinion of the last couple hundred years of biblical studies. Questions about this before we look, move into the textual support for the different um, potential dis, um, perspectives here. Out of curiosity, what you know of the archaeological findings of original texts? How scattered were they geographically? Let's see. question is sure no it's I, I i couldn't tell you on a map but let me tell you the different versions the different languages so um the question is how geographically broad are the the texts that have been found the ancient texts yeah 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 I don't have an answer to that in particular, um, but the the earliest ones that have been found up through the the third century, up through the the 200s, they're all fragmentary. So we don't have any complete copies up through the 200s, complete copies of of the entire New Testament. Uh, but they cover a substantial amount of the New Testament. And Greek manuscripts do not tell the whole story because the New Testament was translated early on into a variety of languages, including Latin, Coptic, Syriac, Armenian, Georgian, Gothic, and Arabic. Of ancient Greek texts, we have 57, excuse me, 5,700, 5,700 ancient Greek texts that we're working from, whether fragmentary or whole. And once you incorporate all those other languages... We're now dealing with over 20,000 texts to try to trace back to the originals. Uh, well, th some of those come later, but yes, but yes, early on, like there's, these were translated early, early on. Uh, I think the 20,000 texts takes us up to about 1,200. So yeah, even, even still. And uh, I'm reading here from, I believe this is the, the ESV study Bible. Uh, and it, it does a little bit of a comparison here. How does this compare with the average classical author? The copies of the average ancient Greek or Latin author's writings number fewer than 20 manuscripts. So if you wanted to go trace back some ancient Greek um, writings from Plato, Aristotle, Sosthenes, uh, you're going to be looking at 20 manuscripts or less typically. There are some that are in the hundreds. Uh, but for scripture to have, the New Testament alone to have almost 6,000. 5,700 is, is really unmatched. And so uh, we have incredible confidence that we are tracing back best we can uh, to very close to the original. So let's say, for example, um, there's a scribe in Rome who gets a copy of um, one of Paul's letters, <clears throat> and he accidentally switches up a couple words. There are uh, in these thousands of documents, here, here's a scary number for you. There are 400,000 variations. That sounds really scary. And a lot of people will stop there and say, see, you can't trust the Bible. Most of those have to do with um, simple spelling errors, because these were humans copying the text. Spelling errors, uh, switching words like uh, Yesu Christu becomes Christu Yesu. Right? Jesus Christ versus Christ Jesus. Those types of uh, word transpositions. Uh, there are things called parablepsis, uh, where a scribe will read a line 
And then if the next line starts with the same word, he'll skip it and go to the next line. And you can trace those back um, because it, you know, or if they repeat the line, you can, you can trace these, these families. So this scribe in Rome gets it. He accidentally skips a line. All the people who copy from him also skip that line. You can trace it back and say, oh, it was from this copy family that this error cropped up, which is why all these Syriac translations that were translated from that one Roman dude's text um, have that error. And so you can trace it back and say, oh, actually, we, we know what it says originally uh, because we have this other document that didn't skip that line. And so it's an older document. It's close to the source. It has the full text. And when there are troublesome grammatical things, you would expect a scribe to try to correct it. So one of the rules when you're trying to figure out what's closest to the original is which one, <laughs> which one's most problematic grammatically. That might be the original. Uh, and there are, of course, exceptions to that rule. And um, sometimes they say the simplest is, is the original. Uh, and, and they're just these different rules that these biblical scholars use as they're doing this textual criticism to try to get back to the originals. And so I explain that copy family concept to you uh, to, to help you realize a lot of these so-called errors, these variants is a better word for it, um, they are benign we're able to figure out what the problem is and, and, and get back to the original, which has been a part of, uh, of course, I say, when I say the original, I mean very close to the original, which is part of why uh, this is really, uh, to me, a comfort more than a um, reason for pause. I'll explain uh, here just a, a couple. This is a really helpful way to break it down. The largest group of these 400,000 variants uh, involves spelling and nonsense errors. The single most common textual variant involves what is known as a movable new. So we say a book versus an apple. It's that N, that movable new. Uh, it's, it's placed at the end of certain words when the next word begins with a vowel. Nonsense errors occur when a scribe wrote a word that makes no sense in its context, usually because of fatigue. So if you're writing for hours and hours and hours, uh, you get tired. Inattentiveness or sometimes misunderstanding of the text in front of him. Some of these errors are quite comical. For example, here's one. Uh, a scribe wrote, we were horses among you. The Greek word is hippoi, supposed to be epioi. And so if you switch the this um, breathing mark on that very first letter, it goes from eh to he, and there you have horses. <laughs> um, and, and whether that's the breathing mark is actually what's going on here, that breathing mark is a very simple thing to switch, and it creates totally different words. And so the word is supposed to be epioi, and it ended up being hippoi. Uh, and so it's supposed to be gentle, or perhaps it has the movable new at the beginning, nepioi, and then it's little children, which carries the same meaning. Um, and that's just one later manuscript. So those are the types of errors we're talking about. And, and you know Paul wasn't writing that we're horses. Uh, so that should give you some comfort there. The second largest variant group uh, consists of minor changes, including synonyms and alterations that don't affect translation. Uh, so, for example... In Greek, uh, you can say the Barnabas, when uh, you can also just say Barnabas. The article is pretty flexible in Greek. So those types of things, they, they don't affect the meaning. Um, word order also. Apparently, uh, this, this um, little article here in the ESV Bible says, study Bible, says there are 16 different ways that you can write this. Jesus loves John. 16 different ways based on word order. Um, and so without, um, 
when you think about the fact that there are 400,000 and most of them have to do with these types of differences that don't even affect the meaning, uh, it, it helps us see that really these, these variations are trivial. And then the third largest category of textual variance involves meaningful changes that are not viable. Uh, viable means a variant has some plausibility. Uh, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, instead of the gospel of God, which is what a lot of the oldest manuscripts wrote, it says the gospel of Christ. That's a very viable change. It could, it could say gospel of Christ, and that makes sense. Um, it's meaningful, but it's, it's, it's actually, by the technical term viable, it's not viable because of the, the textual traditions. You trace all those other families back, and you realize that the, the best copies say God. And so you can very easily dismiss the gospel of Christ uh, as the correct, um, as closer to the original. And then there's the smallest category of textual changes and involves those that are both meaningful and viable. And these are the ones where we as Christians should probably engage in the discussion and talk about it and look at it. And Mark is one of those, the ending of Mark. These comprise less than 1% of all textual variants. That's important to know. Less than 1% of those 400,000 variants are meaningful and viable. Um, so one of them in Romans 5, for example, some manuscripts, manuscripts read, we have peace, while other manuscripts say, let us have peace. The difference is an Omicron versus an um, Omega. An O versus an O. And, and so you can see how that change would creep in but it's really hard to determine which one is the oldest. So is it we have peace with God or is it let us have peace with God? Is it telling, declaring you have peace or is it telling you to live out of that peace that you have with God? There's a meaningful difference. But you see how the gospel is not affected by that. You can see how the, the core truths of Scripture are not affected by these less than 1% of the variants. There are two large textual variants one here at the end of Mark, and one in John 7 and 8 uh, with the woman caught in adultery. So those are the, the two large ones. So we're going to look at this one today. Questions before we jump in? Two questions. Yes. So funnily enough, last week, the pastor of my parents' church was in Acts and talking about... Um, oh, my dad's going to listen to this. Say hi to Brian for us. Anyway. <laughs> um, uh, he was saying in Acts... Uh, they're explaining why Silas was there to go with Paul after um, Paul and Barnabas split up, uh, because in the earlier verses, it makes the implication that Silas, along with the other Christians from Jerusalem, went back to Jerusalem after the council. And so there's like, I think it's verse 35 is the one that's omitted, um, and it reads something like, and Silas had seen it good to stay there or something. And is that an example of uh, an editor making a clarification that became part of scripture or is that like, um, does that fall into the 1%? I'd have to look at it. Okay. And some of those scribal things that get moved in fall into that 1%. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So it could be both. Okay. And then has anybody done like a numerical, like, this all sounds like gen like you're in my genetics class right now. We're talking about mm -hmm. nonsense mutations and missense mm -hmm. and transpositions mm -hmm. and all that. And it would seem to me that you could like 
build a phylogenetic tree of all of your <laughs> variants oh, and like wow. say this one's more closely related to that one. But you just well. need a consultation with a geneticist. Yeah. <laughs> I guarantee you somebody has tried to undertake that task. There's software packages. They exist. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll just ask AI Jesus. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, great question. I, I would, if I discover that, I'll let you know. And if you discover it, please let me know. All right, with the last 10 minutes, let's look at the handout. <clears throat> okay, here is some argument for including verses 9 through 20. The majority of ancient documents include verses 9 through 20. <laughs> oh boy. Why is that not, why does that not close the case? Based on what we just talked about. That's right. You don't establish truth by counting noses. So um, give me a hypothetical case where that does not prove um, that these verses should be included in or were included in the original. Explain to me with the terms we've been talking about. The majority of America would say certain things are correct or true or right or noble, mm-hmm. while believers would say the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yep, right. Maybe one of the earlier copiers made an addition or something like that, and so all the further copies kind of just float up from that. That's right. So would you expect verses 9 through 20 to be very old or very late? Very old. Very old. Very early. Because if the majority of the copies that we have have been you know, reflected, then it was probably introduced early, and indeed that's what we find. Irenaeus around the late 2nd century, quoted Mark 16, 19. All right, this is the end of the 100s. A verse from Mark 16 in the long version here um, seems like it was quoted by Irenaeus, indicating that it existed early, early on. There's also an apocryphal work called the Epistula Apostolorum, and it bears witness to the existence of the longer ending by around the middle of that 2nd century. Justin Martyr and Tatian likely knew the verses earlier in the second century as well. Their quotes are not as direct, um, but it seems like they knew the verses as well. And there's also an alternative ending called the shorter ending that was found in a handful of texts in the 600s to 800s. So it seems like people were not satisfied early on with the ending that we find here in verse 8. And so either they tried to create a new ending uh, or... Uh, yeah, they tried to create a new ending, whether it was the long one that you see bracketed off or if it's the short one that's footnoted in my ESV. So there has been question as to why does it end the way it does, and we're going to get to that. That's the textual support for the longer ending. Let's look at the textual support for the um, that Mark's original ended at verse 8. As, as Let me put a caveat in there. That the most original Greek version that we can find ended at verse 8. This is Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. These are our oldest complete copies of the Bible. These are two of the most reliable uh, versions when it comes to trying to trace back to the original. They're not always right, but these are two of the most dependable um, copies of the Bible from the 4th century, so this is from the 300s, and they exclude verses 9 through 20, even though verses 9 through 20 were already known by then. They decided that early on to exclude them. 
And that's because you may see in there, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Eusebius, and Jerome all reject them. Specifically, Clement of Alexandria and Origen in the mid to late second century, mid to late 100s, they don't show any awareness. Whereas Eusebius and Jerome actually combat their inclusion early, early on in the mid third and mid fourth centuries. The Vulgate, that's correct. Yep. Jerome wrote to um, Habidia. I don't know who Habidia is, but uh, he wrote to this person, um, quote, almost all the Greek copies do not have this concluding portion, end quote. So at his point, what's that? That's an interesting quote, because like, if we're talking about the lifespan of manuscripts and like they're constantly dying off, mm-hmm. he's at a point where the horizon mm-hmm. of what's available would be more, I think, would be more representative of what was originally mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if he's saying, look at all the copies we have, none of them have this, mm-hmm. it kind of inverts what we just said. It does. Mm-hmm. Which shows you what time does, and it shows you that the, the copy, uh, that the one that was copied uh, with the longer ending, somehow rose to prominence uh, after this fact. Um, and, and I can't necessarily explain how that happened. Were they in scrolls or were they Um... I should have looked up that. I, I was I was at wondering that question. I don't remember when they switched to codices. Um, it was not long after this time, and that's actually going to come into play when we get to the the end here. As we're talking about, did did a page? Okay. 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 Were they? Most members, church members, didn't have their own copies. They typically had copies that belonged to the church, owned by the church. Typically, the And there's also there's an apocryphal work. I couldn't tell you the date. It's called the Gospel of Peter, uh, but it shows no knowledge of the longer ending as well. So you may see notes of that there on your page. We're not the first ones to bracket off verses 9 through 20. Ephraim the monk in 900 wrote, In some of the copies, the evangelist finishes up here, up to which point also Eusebius of Pamphilus made canon sections. But in many, the following is also contained. So at 900, there was this question, which one? And so he put that note in there before he continued verses 9 through 20 in the 900s. But it seems like he actually quoted that. I, I forgot this note. It seems like he quoted that from an earlier marginal note uh, because that same note has been found in at least 11 other Greek copies. So it could be a note from hundreds of years earlier. So this confusion, and now it seems to be, if early on it was primarily excluded, now by the seven, eight, nine hundreds, it seems to be a mix. When you get to the 1200s, it might be that those specific ones have taken over prominence with the long addition. That's if we're looking at the external evidence. And we could probably talk about these and dive in. And I've, I've got this book up here that dives into all the specific um, manuscripts and fragments. And, uh, and it's really an interesting read. Um, you can take a look at it if you'd like. But I think for the sake of time, let's move on 
to talk about why internally, when we're looking at Mark as a piece of literature, why the ending doesn't really make sense. First of all, there are 17 vocabulary anomalies in these last 12 verses. Words he hadn't used. Some people say they're 18. Words he hadn't used or words he hadn't used as he had used them earlier. And so it seems like a totally new style, starting right at verse 9. Also, verses 8 and 9 don't flow naturally. Verse 8 has a presumed subject, um, and verse 9 has a different presumed subject. And so it just seems to jump right in to um, something else. And so whether that was copied from somewhere else and just kind of tacked on, we don't know. Whether it was written to be a tack on to the end of Mark, we can't tell. But theologically, there's also questionable content in these verses, uh, in verses 11, 13, 14, and 16, the disciples are chastised for their disbelief of the gospel proclamation. And that's unique to the longer ending. Um, and then there's also the prominence giving to the charismatic signs in verses 17 and 18. And that stands in stark contrast to the reserve of Jesus and Mark with regard to signs and sensation. Uh, if you look back at chapter 8, um, verses... 11 and 13. Let me just read them really quickly. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Um, and of course, you know, you can interpret that a variety of ways, but Mark is not filled with all this sensationalism and emotionalism that has largely grown out of verses 17 and 18. Other people look at verses 17 and 18 and say, um, well, they, there was speaking in tongues in Acts 2, and Paul did pick up a serpent. Um, now, we don't know of anybody who dr drank deadly poison and didn't die, but um, some people could say this, these did happen in the early church and then ceased. Um, but it seems a little bit inconsistent with Mark's writing itself, uh, even the content of it. Theologically, if we go ahead and just remove verses 9 through 20, uh, we lose nothing of the gospel because the statement of Christ's resurrection has been made. The encounter is not detailed for us. That could be intentional to Mark's literary style. We also get it in Mark, in Matthew and Luke and John. Um, so we need to understand that this long ending then is a slightly later edition composed largely of material from the Gospels. Uh, this also affirms that the four Gospels were recognized and circulating early in the second century. Thoughts on that? The internal inconsistency is much more weighty than the external. Hmm. Where, it, and just, even just in English, the, the transition from eight to nine, you, it, it's a leap. Mm -hmm. um, even with, without the external, I agree. That question, um, or, or that identifying that has come up more recently in the last 150 years of biblical scholarship because in the mid-1800s and even into the 1900s, the, the discussion was how can we chop up the scripture into as many small pieces as we can and say, well, he wrote this, he wrote this, he wrote this, he wrote this, and somebody else came along later and smashed it all together. They were trying to look for those discrepancies. Now what people are trying to do is figure out how can we read this as a whole? And when you try to read this as a whole and look at the, the literary threads that go through, there's still disconnect here. 
in verse 9. And so uh, I, I think you're right. There, there is a weightiness to the fact that it really is just disjointed. So that leaves us with one last question. I'm sure it leaves us with a thousand questions, but um, did Mark mean to end it at verse 8? Or did he not? What's that? I'll have to wait and ask. I, th- I think you're correct. We're going to have to wait and ask. Let me go ahead and just tell you the different theories here. Some people say he intended to end differently. Uh, the theories that argue that Mark didn't intend to end at verse 8 either say that his writing process was interrupted or that the last page was lost at some point. So then the question of codices comes up. Were, were they, was it written in a book format at that time? Um, with... With the prominence that that view has, I would say there's some type of page leafing where that is a viable theory. Um, but I, I don't know the, the historical facts about what type of paper was used at what times. Uh, if his writing process was interrupted, it would have made sense that if this was written in the mid-60s, as we think it was, that Mark could have been a martyr under Nero. It's possible. And so he could have not been able to finish it. Um, and it could have been... Um, some people say the last page was lost and it probably looked a lot like Matthew because Matthew was trekking with Mark and used Mark a lot as he put together his gospel. So maybe it ended with the Great Commission. Uh, Maybe it ended with Jesus appearing to his disciples as it was promised. He will see you in Galilee, just as he said. And um, so perhaps that's how Mark intended to end it. That's the the, the lost page uh, theory. And of course, this is all speculation. So please hear, this this is speculative. Uh, it is awkward to end a book this way. He ends with the word gar, which means four. That has, there are three Greek texts that end with the word gar, not biblical, but it's, it's not unheard of. It's just incredibly uncommon to end with the word gar. So um, people who say that Mark intended to end differently say that there's a page that just disappeared and that was going on to the next page and the sentence is cut off and there was more to it. Uh, because the grammatical ending of a book is awkward at least. Uh, And to start a book with the beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, or the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then to end with, for they were afraid, uh, there's there's some discontinuity there, and and you have to wrestle with that. And it seems that uh, since there's a long edition put on, and since there was a short uh, ending that was uh, attempted to be put on, since these scribes are finding the need to wrap up uh, what seemed like an incomplete book, it felt like an incomplete book to them even early on. Would an English or language teacher uh, mark it wrong? Oh, man. (laughs) That's a good question. Um, No. Because we looked at two examples this morning where a similar construction ended thoughts in Genesis. Um, what about just not, if I'm understanding correctly, then it's just not a, a smooth flow from one idea to the next, correct? So this also gets into the word order of Greek. You can end the sentence with four, and it still apply to the, the thought before it. And the thought before it is they were afraid. Okay. They were afraid for and it's over. So we can read it in English as for they were afraid, and that's why it looks that way in English. It's just a unique construction within Greek grammar. It's not common. I don't think it's wrong. It's just uncommon. I don't know if it'd be like us ending a sentence with a preposition. 
Um, for some people, that drives you crazy. For other people, I think it's I think it's fine. <laughs> there it is. Um. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think scribe is too uh, sterile of a relationship. I think Mark knew much of this from Peter, perhaps wrote with Peter's guidance. I don't know if dictation. I, it's hard to know. Um, it's hard to know. Some of Mark's grammar. How much was Mark there? Um, yeah, very little. Yeah, so Mark has clunky grammar regularly. So that might be Peter's spoken um, language and it's just written. Right, right. Yeah, who, who would have known a couple languages, Greek being one of them. Um, yeah, so whether it's a scribal relationship with Peter or not, the, the, the Petrine influence is still debated by some. Um, I, I think it's pretty, um, I, I think it's pretty valid. We're going to go into First Peter for our next series of sermons. Um, so, <laughs> I'll tell you. I'll tell you more. I'll tell you more later. Uh, we're going to do a filler series for four weeks in July, and then we'll jump into First Peter in August. Yeah. So I don't have an answer to that yet. Um, lastly. If well, here's the question: Did Mark intend to end at verse eight? Um, first of all, you have to remember our oldest documents end at verse eight. Our best scribal textual um, trans tradition ends at verse eight. So that's an, a case, an argument for it. Uh, there are other reasons. Um, some people would say, for they were afraid is inconsistent, or excuse me, is consistent with human response to God's awe-inspiring work. So to end with encountering the resurrection, the most incredible of all um, God's miracles, it is proper to say, and this is a human response to it. How are you going to respond? Uh, a, a sense of invitation into to viewing it as the women did. Um, there are other places where Jesus um, did incredible uh, acts, Mark 5.15 and Mark 5.33. Uh, we detailed some of these this morning. Um, and then Mark 9, with the transfiguration, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. To see the glory of the resurrected Christ leads one to fear. And so it's kind of just, it could be sitting there hanging to drive home the magnitude of what was just witnessed. Um, and as we said, it could be refer referencing Sarah in Genesis 18. It says, for she was afraid as she heard the promise of life uh, from her womb. And then in uh, Genesis 45, 3, Joseph, when his brothers found out that he was still alive and in power, they were dismayed. And that's a similar construction. And that was in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of those. Um, Mark could be demanding his readers to respond in faith by hearing, if, if you believe, in, by hearing the gospel, even the witness of the women, you respond by hearing the gospel, not by seeing. Faith by uh, hearing, not by sight. Uh, and there are uh, so many different theological understandings for what Mark might be doing with these last couple words in the book. Uh, I could detail you about five different interpretations if you're interested. But 
If it sounds like I'm arguing for it ending at verse 8 intentionally, let me throw one more caveat in here. Some would argue that to end a book like this is a very modern understanding of reader response theory and was not typical of ancient documents. You cannot expect somebody from the first century to write with such a cliffhanger inviting the reader to step into the shoes of the characters. They say that's not typical of ancient writing styles. And with that, I have to say, I don't really know how Mark intended to end it, but it's pretty clear verses 9 through 20 were not original. Um, so we'll have to wait and ask Mark. How he intended to end it? Like, why does it matter whether it was original? Like, yes. Yeah. Um, I'm less convinced that it does. Because we have the gospel in all its fullness and all its beauty, and we have the story of the resurrection. God preserved his word for us as he intended us to have it. And so he preserved it in Matthew and in Luke and in John. Um, and perhaps there was nothing that was unpreserved in Mark. It, it really doesn't change the gospel. It's just, I think, helpful for us to know as we're looking at our text what's, what is going on when these things are bracketed off. And if he's sovereign over all of it, then anything that was added would allow my God. <laughs> That's, yeah, I think in, we're trying to preserve the original Greek and Hebrew. So if scribes came along later and added things that were unhelpful, those we don't want to say were... If it was scribes. Yeah, yeah. And this was... Almost uh, verses nine through twenty were, were do not seem to be marking, uh, so they seem to have been added by somebody. Does that answer yeah, or no, get at I it? Agree that just, yeah. Yeah. The question behind the question, like what else might be there, that's not important to me. Um, I think, and that's that's why I stopped preaching at verse eight, um, because I don't want to preach something that God did not inspire through Mark. Um, so that's. That's why I stopped there. It's kind of a jumping off point, your question, into why are the books that we have the books that we have? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because there's a whole other set of first century literature that uh, seems to be talking about some of the same things, but we don't include as canon because of X, Y, Z. Yeah, and we would have to include those 400,000 variants if, if we say that anything that has come to us it should be there. And I, I don't think, that, that's not the goal of what we're trying to do. We're not trying to be all-inclusive. We're trying to hone down to what was original, as close as we can get. Yes? Years ago, I heard a, an interview with Jim Packer, who was on the ESV. He headed up the translation committee. And there was intense debate amongst the scholars about whether to include that ending of Mark. And they voted on it several times, and it went different ways. And in the end, they decided to do what they did, which was put it in there and bracket it off. That seemed to be the, the best they could do. But there, there were, it almost didn't make it. In mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's helpful perspective. When we have confidence that 99 point something percent of these variants are, are wrong, it is those few, like, what, what do we do with those? And, yeah, I'm with you. I wouldn't want to be responsible for it. Part of it is repeated elsewhere, too. Like, mm -hmm. like the Great Commission's repeated. And, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
And so again, we just have to be grateful that God has preserved all of it for us as as we need it. Um, he's not He's not beyond uh, even using human scribes. He, I mean, he used human writers. That was his choice. Yeah, he chose to that's partner right. With, yeah. with humans to mm-hmm. transmit his word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is the biggest, um, this one and, and John 7 and 8 are the biggest, heaviest discussions in textual tradition, textual criticism. So I hope this gives you confidence in the scriptures that we have. Um, that's, that's what I hope to leave you with. I'm going to end this right there. Uh, we're going to sing and then, oh, I'm going to pray and then we'll sing and then we will go. So let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us to encourage us, and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Would you make us diligent students of it? Uh, We pray that uh, you would encourage us by it, that we would look at even what we've discussed tonight and be encouraged, that you care uh, deeply enough to, to give us copies of your word in English in ways that we can understand. Would we uh, meet you in these pages? Would we uh, be grateful for the uh, incredible story of who Christ is as we see him in all the Gospels and especially in the Gospel of Mark? Thank you for this time that we have had to spend in the Gospel of Mark for the last year and a few months. Uh, would um, Would we be changed by it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.